Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to finish this chapter today. I'll have two more messages in the book of Genesis. Next time we will look at a bulk of Genesis 9 and then finish up Genesis 9 after that. Christmas Eve will be a New Year's related service, or a Christmas related service. I'll be away on New Year's Eve. So we have uh, just today and two more messages. And so as we look at this flood narrative, that which took place so many, many years ago, for one year and 11 days, Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, and all of the air-breathing animal kingdom stayed aboard the ark while God was in the process of uncorrupting His world. This catastrophic and universal flood has extinguished all of life that is on the land and in the air, and only the marine world is capable of surviving. In fact, it's interesting when they talk about the amount of water that actually fell during the 40-day period of rain, that it most likely had a massive increase in the amount of water in the oceans. We can never know. We can only speculate. But everything perished with the exception of that which was on the ark and that which lived in the water. And now after floating on the water, sitting atop Mount Ararat, Noah, his family, and all of the animal kingdom disembark and make their way to start life again. As we continue building our outline, we look at the new world. So as they have left the ark and come down from the mountain and begin to establish life on earth. It is, in fact, a new world. We're going to look at just these three verses today, eight, chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, and then we'll talk about that for a bit. Here's what God's Word says to us today. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease." So as light begins in the new world, the very first thing that Noah does is he worships. We don't have any idea how long it took down, how long it took to get down the mountain, what they had to do to get settled, but the very first thing that scripture records for us that Moses does, that Noah does, is he worships. The beginning part of verse 20, that Noah built an altar to the Lord. Now this is not the first time that worship is referenced or mentioned in the Genesis account. In fact, when Cain and Abel brought their offerings to the Lord, it is widely understood that that is an act of worship, that they were coming to worship God. And although Abel's Offering was accepted and Cain's was rejected. We don't know the details of what was a part of that worship experience, but that is the very first instance of worship that we find in the book of Genesis. Again, in Genesis 4.26, we would read this, Seth to Seth, to him also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So through the life of Enosh, men called upon the name of the Lord and presumably worshipped him, recognizing the great 
great God that he is. So this is the first time that there is the mention of an altar anywhere in the account of Genesis. So as Noah's life begins in the new world, this act of worship is both a recognition of God as creator and as savior. So the decorruption of the world polluted by man's sin is in many ways a recreation of life on earth. It's speculated about what kind of plant life would have been able to survive being underwater for 40 days. But it, it flourished, and so as the water subsided and all of the vegetation came back from the ground, and as the animals disembarked from the earth and from the ark and came down to the ground, it is in many respects a recreation of life on earth. And for these individuals in the ark, they clearly recognize God's provision for salvation from the flood. So in this act of worship where Noah builds an altar, it recognizes God as creator and as savior. Now remember that while the flood is historical, it also foreshadows a future destruction, the end of time, and God's provision of salvation through Jesus Christ and faith in the finished work at the cross. There's no way to separate these two things. I mentioned this many, many weeks ago. But Noah is widely understood to be the new Adam where life is recreated and where a covenant is established. And so here, this act of worship involving an altar is most certainly an act of worship of God as creator and as a savior. Worship should always be rooted in the person and in the work of God. Let me say that again. Worship should always be rooted in the person and in the work of God. When our gathering does not acknowledge the person of God, it does not celebrate the work of God, then our worship is lost its centralness to what the message of the Bible is really all about. That's why it's always important that the songs that we sing reflect the greatness of God. It reminds us of the work that He has, that he has accomplished on our behalf. It reveals to us our need for Him, our need for a Savior, and it gives us a hope in the future glorification and what will be our eternal experience when the salvation that was begun in us is perfected and completed and we worship God and see Him exactly as He is with no presence of sin, with no cloud on our perspective, it will always be rooted in the work and in the person of God. We worship Him because of who He is, because He is infinitely good, He is infinitely holy, He is infinitely righteous. And we worship Him because of what He has done, providing for our salvation through His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. So here Noah recognizes both the creative work of God and his provision for salvation from the flood. Now as you notice, there's no record of any instruction being given to Noah as to what he is to do once he leaves the ark and gets on the ground. It is unknown if he is acting on his own accord or if he is simply obeying unrecorded instruction from God. But what we see is that Noah builds an altar... 
And we know what an altar is used for, don't we? An altar is always used for sacrifice. So Noah comes out of the ark, down the mountain, he builds an altar to worship God and to offer a sacrifice. The middle part of verse 20, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now it's very easy to read this part of verse 20 and miss the enormity of what it says. Noah just didn't offer up a single sacrifice, but he offered up every clean bird and every clean animal as a sacrifice. Not just an animal, not just a bird, but of every clean bird, of every clean animal, Noah offered up a burnt offering sacrifice. This would include dozens of species. After spending more than a year with these animals and tending to them, shepherding them, if you will, Noah now has the task of sacrificing them. I would imagine that this is a fairly subdued experience and that there would be a very profound personal identification with the sacrifice that Noah was offering out of worship, reverence, love for the Lord. I didn't want to get into great detail here, but when a burnt offering is made to the Lord, the skin or the hide is removed, and you only burn what is inside. With that sacrifice, there would be the shedding of all the blood that came from that animal. And so here is Noah and his sons, presumably, offering up a burnt offering of every clean bird and of every clean animal. And I would imagine that would have been a horrific sight. Sinful man always, always requires mediation from God and that always requires a sacrifice. Always. When Adam sinned, God sacrificed an animal and made loin coverings for them, not out of the vegetation, but out of the hide of that animal. There was, a nece- there was necessary for a sacrifice. We see the same thing here on a much enlarged scale, probably because of the reality of absolute devastation of every living thing that was on the earth. This act of sacrifice is a preview of what is to come to the nation of Israel through Moses, which would be a very developed, a very detailed, a very comprehensive sacrificial system to mediate the sinfulness of mankind. When you read through Exodus and you read through Leviticus and you read all the instructions and the book of Numbers, all of that is about God mediating the sinfulness of man through sacrifice. Sacrifice always requires the shedding of blood. What you see here, here at, with Noah on the altar, what you see with the institution of a sacrificial system, what you see at the cross of Jesus Christ always reminds us that the forgiveness of sin, the mediation of God, always requires a sacrifice. Always. 
This is a very, very large scale of sacrifice here. Now, there are many types of offerings in the Jewish worship, but the burnt offering is a voluntary offering for sin, and it represents total devotion to the Lord. The entirety of the animal, except for the hide, is burnt on the altar. Nothing is eaten. Nothing is given to the priest as an offering for his service. Everything is consumed, and it is a symbolic act of total devotion to the Lord. So when Noah comes off of the ark, in the absence of any recorded instruction from God to him, he takes and sacrifices of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and it reflects the reality that Noah is a righteous man, blameless in his day, and he walked with God, and he was underscoring his total devotion to the Lord. Don't think for a moment that Noah was not aware of he and his family's unique sparing from death as the floodwaters came and the ark floated safely on the surface and they came off of that boat and saw nothing that resembled the old world. No people, only the animals that were coming down the ark. People speculate about the corpses that might have been everywhere. We don't really know. But Noah reflects his righteousness, his blamelessness, and the fact that he walked with God by offering such a profound sacrifice, symbolically depicting his total devotion to the Lord. I could imagine the scene. I couldn't imagine... That there would be exuberance seeing all of these dead animals knowing that it is my salvation that required all of this to happen. You know, folks, when we look at the cross, it's so familiar that we forget it's my sin that put Him there. When we look at the manger, when we look at all of the elements of Christmas, when we look at a nativity scene, it's a reminder that that was necessary for my forgiveness. This horrific sight around the altar, this act of worship, symbolizing total devotion to the Lord, we're told in verse 21, is pleasing to God. When the aroma of that sacrifice comes up before the Lord, He is pleased. Whether or not we're talking about a literal smelling, probably not, anthropomorphized. I don't know that God necessarily needs to smell. But it depicts the reality that God is pleased with what Noah has done. Now this is important because this description here of God smelling the aroma of sacrifice means that God has accepted it. God has looked favorably upon Noah, the worshiper, and has accepted what has been presented to God. Refusal to smell the sacrifice meant God's rejection of the one who was offering that sacrifice to him. We see a warning of this in the book of Leviticus, this warning for future disobedience in what God is going to say, what God is going to do. Leviticus 26, 31, I will lay waste your cities, 
as well and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your soothing aromas. You see that there? You see what God says? Hey, you can, you can offer up to me the choicest of everything that is out there. But if the heart of a worshiper is not right, if the state of the nation is not right, I am not going to accept it. I am not going to be pleased by it. I will not be smelling the aroma of what it is you're presenting to me. He would pronounce his displeasure for the nation of Israel through the prophet Amos in chapter 5, 21 and 22. God says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. It's not about what we give. It's about who we are. It's about our total devotion to the Lord. When you write your check on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night or when you set it up in your bank account, God is not looking at the amount. He's looking at the heart. You could give the biggest offering the church has ever, ever received. And if your heart is not right with God, God says, I'm not pleased by that. I'm not pleased by what you give. I'm pleased by the condition of your heart and whether or not it reflects devotion to me. God isn't satisfied with just a sacrifice or just an offering. He's only satisfied when the heart of the one Presenting the sacrifice is true. You know what it means to be duplicitous. Forgot the word. I can't get it out. (laughs) You know what I'm trying to say, right? When you hear someone speaking, I think of a politician, and you know they're not telling the truth, you go... I can't even listen to what it is you have to say. I reject it. I don't, even, I don't even want to hear your voice. I'm going to mute you because I don't want to hear it. This is exactly what God does when the hearts of those who come to worship do not reflect a heart that is true to Him. Well, God is well pleased with Noah's sacrifice. It arises to Him... And it smells wonderful because it comes from the heart of a man who is righteous and blameless and walks with him and will endure this horrific experience to demonstrate his total devotion to the Lord. Well, the next thing that we see here in this new world, letter D on our outline, is God's covenants. This is technically what this is. So verse 21 and 22 record God's thoughts. It is God speaking to Himself. It's not the first time that we've seen this depicted for us in the book of Genesis. In one twenty-six, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God speaking to Himself, thinking to Himself out loud, if you will. Genesis 3.22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And so here we find a very, very similar thing where Moses takes us into the inner thoughts of God 
where he makes these three promises internally. These are not communicated to Noah. The communication of God and the covenant of God will be verbalized to Noah in chapter 9. But this is a look at the inner communication of God within himself, if you will. So, the first thing that God says is, I will not curse. Middle part of verse 22. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God covenants, God promises to never do again what He has just done in bringing about this universal flood and extinguishing all air-breathing life on the earth. He says, I will never again curse the earth in that way. This is not God saying that I am undoing the curse of Genesis 3. That's not what God is saying. Some actually believe that this is what God is saying. It is God saying He will will not curse the earth again as he did with the universal flood or with some other measure where all of life would be extinguished on the earth. Because God is infinitely holy and infinitely just, he was right in doing what he did, and he did so with his unique divine prerogative, but he will never do it again. That is what God is saying here. I will not curse the earth as I have just done in the flood. The flood is tied to Genesis 6-5 and not Genesis 3-17 where Adam and Eve ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this is what brought about the flood. But make no mistake, it started in Genesis 3.17 with the sin of Adam and Eve. And so this first covenant is causal. There's a cause for this covenant that God is making. God says, I will not curse the earth as I have just done. And he goes on to say, quote, on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, if the total depravity of man is going to trigger a just and a right universal flood or universal catastrophe where all of life is going to be wiped out, if that is dependent upon the total depravity of man, then my friend, the earth is going to be flooded many, many times. What this tells us is that man's heart is completely sinful and wicked and continually cursing the earth with total devastation isn't going to change that. It isn't going to solve that. God said, I am going to uncorrupt my world by bringing about this catastrophic flood. But if this flood is triggered by the total depravity of man, then it's going to happen again and again and again. God is saying, I'm not going to bring about this universal catastrophe because of the heart of man. There's only one thing that can change the total depravity found within the heart of man, and that is the salvation that comes from trusting in Jesus Christ. And while our salvation does change us, this change isn't fully realized or personally experienced in completion until we leave this world and enter into eternity. Noah and his family are going to bring the curse of sin with them, 
Things are going to get just as bad as they were. Why? Because the heart of man is evil from his youth. That is true. And God is saying, I am not going to curse the earth again because the heart of man is desperately sick. Totally depraved. Doesn't want anything to do with me. That is not going to bring about, that reality is not going to bring about another act of total devastation. God is committing to never again curse the earth. God is committing to forgiveness as a new beginning and not total destruction. Think about that. Uncorrupting the world that God had made was a new beginning. It was a new world. It was a new Adam. There was old life coming into the new world to start afresh. God commits not to a new beginning, but God commits to forgiveness as the means for a new beginning and not this total destruction. God doesn't have to do that. It is within God's holy, righteous, and just prerogative to wipe out all of life on planet Earth and to start it over again and again and again. But He is choosing not to do that. He is instead choosing to allow forgiveness to mark a new beginning within the life of mankind. He doesn't have to do that. But because He is infinitely gracious and infinitely infinitely loving, this is what God decides to do. The second covenant that God makes here is directly connected to the first, I will not destroy. I will not curse, meaning I will not bring about this worldwide catastrophic event, and I will not destroy. 21c, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. God is promising that nothing like the flood will ever happen again where all of life is extinguished. Now, I said this earlier, God took no pleasure in decorrupting the world that He had made. He took no pleasure in extinguishing the lives of all people and of all air-breathing animals. And he covenants to never doing this again. Why? Because forgiveness is what brings about a new beginning and not destruction and total devastation. So God says, I will not curse and I will not destroy. And the third part of this covenant is very, very difficult to see. It is found through... The literary style, it is found through the Hebrew text and what it actually says and what it means. This verse 22 is a poem. It is in some regards, in some respects, a benediction to what has taken place. And it says, and what God says is, I will bless. Verse 22, while the earth remains, Sea time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. So this verse identifies the regular predictable cycle of the yearly seasons on the earth. Sea time and harvest indicating food for man and food for animals. The annual changes in the environment will continue. Instead of destruction, God will bless the earth. From goodness, kindness, 
and great from the, excuse me, from the goodness, kindness, and graciousness of God, the earth will continue to exist under His sovereign and directive hand. The earth will not be blessed because of man's righteousness, but because of God's choice. The original curse as a result of Adam and Eve's sin will continue. The thorns and the thistles, the sweat of the brow, hard work for little return will still be very, very normal. And post-flood, it is believed that this also brought about widespread changes in the environmental cycles where extremes would now be common and natural disasters would have devastating impact. Prior to the flood, these things did not take place. After the flood, this becomes very, very commonplace in the world in which we live. Many suspect that the once singular landmass that was described in Genesis 1 as God's creation, where he separated the land from the water and brought out this, this massive dry land from beneath the water, some believe that the flood resulted in the breaking up of this massive landmass to what represents our now modern continental configuration. In fact, if you go to a globe and you look at how the separate continents could be put together, if you fast forward through several thousands of years and account for erosion and other kinds of things, you could fit that landmass together pretty well. It's very possible that the flood brought about the breaking up of that landmass and separating the continents, but it's only speculation. You can't say for sure. It is very possible that other geological and environmental changes would be a part of this post-flood world, but again, it's only speculation. We can't deal definitively with what the Bible doesn't say and with what we can't be certain of based upon information that we can derive from secular science. Here we have the covenant of God that life will go on under His gracious hand. The earth will see the regular changing of the seasons. All of this comes about by the gracious choice of God. The only condition that is established in this covenant is that this earth is temporary. You see this in the beginning part, while the earth endures, or in my translation it says, while the earth remains. So as long as the earth remains, this is what normal life is going to look like on the earth. Sea time and harvest, you're going to see the changing of the seasons, you're going to see all of those normal environmental cycles take place under the gracious loving hand of God. But that is only a temporary condition. The world as we know it will not go on forever. Now, modern science, modern scientism tells us that global warming is going to kill everything. Astrophysicists tell us that certainly there's a massive meteor that's going to come and totally destroy the earth. We don't really know. All we know is that life on earth is temporary. At some point in the future that we can never know for sure, The clock of history as we know it is going to come to an end. And when that happens, we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for our life. 2 Peter 3, verses 3-7 through tell us this. 
Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For every since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, to which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. There you go. Life on earth is temporary. It is going to come to an end. There is going to be a universal judgment of all of mankind. And that is foreshadowed by the judgment that came at the hands of God when He uncorrupted His world because of the sinfulness of mankind. So when the flood came, Noah was ready When the end comes, will you be ready? You see, that's really the question. That's what the flood ought to cause us to ask ourselves. If this is a preview of the end of all of history as we know it, am I ready? Well, saving faith in Jesus Christ alone is what makes us ready. Apart from that, we are not ready. Would you join me in prayer, please?